With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by China. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. It is a week of international developments for China. India tries to pull away international companies' supply chains from China. The U.S. and China continue to lock horns over TikTok. And less international travel might spell bad news for education apps for foreign students. With all your top news for the week, here's what's happening in China. Microsoft has confirmed for the first time it is in ongoing discussions to acquire the U.S. operations of short video app TikTok from China-based parent company ByteDance Limited, saying it will go ahead with a plan. The news follows President Donald Trump saying he would ban TikTok in the country following concerns about data collection by the wildly popular app escalating the administration's clash with China. Microsoft said it will move quickly to pursue discussions with ByteDance that are expected to conclude by September 15th. It said it would also continue discussions with the U.S. government and President Trump during the process. Samsung Electronics and Apple's assembly partners are among 22 companies that have pledged $1.5 billion worth of investments to set up mobile phone manufacturing units in India. Of particular significance to China is the fact that Foxconn Technology Group, Wistron Corp, and Pegatron Corp, all iPhone assemblers, are among companies picked to make smartphones under a production-linked incentive plan, Ravi Shankar Prasad, Minister for Electronics and Information Technology, said at a press conference in New Delhi Saturday. According to Bloomberg, the incentives are specifically aimed at encouraging global companies to shift their manufacturing bases beyond China. The Caixin China General Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index, PMI, which gives an independent snapshot of the country's manufacturing sector, rose to 52.8 from 51.2 in June, a report released Monday showed. A number above 50 signals an expansion in activity while reading below that indicates a contraction. It is the fastest expansion of output and new orders since January 2011. The figure adds to evidence that China's economic recovery may continue in the second half of 2020 as the country rebounds from the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Tsai Xin was able to break the news that financial giant Ant Group is looking to raise around $30 billion in its highly anticipated concurrent IPO in Hong Kong and Shanghai, sources with knowledge of the matter told Tsai Xin. If all goes according to plan, the listing would be the largest ever, surpassing even Saudi Arabian oil giant Saudi Aramco's $29.4 billion IPO about a half year ago. It is, however, important to note that plans have not yet been finalized. According to a person close to Ant Group's IPO underwriters who told Caixin, the company is still in discussions with the Shanghai and Hong Kong stock exchanges, as well as regulators, end quote. The Hong Kong-based South China Morning Post has announced it will put its paywall back up in August as it acknowledged it needs subscription payments amid the current decline in advertising. The newspaper's decision, announced Monday, reverses a 2016 move to take down its then 10-year-old paywall following its acquisition by tech behemoth Alibaba Group Holding Limited. At the time, Alibaba said it was removing the paywall to grow the paper's readership. Starting next month, the financial hub's leading English-language newspaper will roll out a metered paywall on its website and mobile app, Tammy Tam, the paper's editor-in-chief, said in a letter to readers. China's spending on electric power infrastructure rose strongly in the first half of this year, with wind power recording triple-digit growth to make up a quarter of all investment as the nation continued its drive to get more power from cleaner, renewable sources. Total investment in the power sector, which includes both generation and transmission projects, reached $48.5 billion between January and June, up 21.6% from the same period a year earlier, the China Electricity Council said in its mid-year report released Wednesday. The biggest growth in wind energy was seen in eastern coastal regions, which have also seen the biggest recovery from COVID-19. And finally, while many have seen COVID-19 and the associated lockdowns as a boon to online education platforms, it has been bad news for at least one web-based tutoring company. Private education provider New Oriental Education and Technology Group, Inc., reported plunging second-quarter profits. The company announced a 69.5% year-on-year drop in profit in the three months ending on May 31st to $13.2 million, while revenue decreased 5.3% to $798.5 million. The number of students enrolled in its tutoring programs and test preparation courses, many of which prepare students to enroll in universities overseas, shrunk by 6.2%, according to the financial report released Tuesday. Let's turn now to Caixin Global China General News reporter Matthew Walsh to talk about a story he worked on this week about those international students, Chinese international students in the U.S. specifically. Matthew, could you walk us through what they have been going through? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me, by the way, Kaiser. Um, so, yeah, recently I've been looking into the experiences of um, Chinese international students who have been forced to to come home or who have experienced disrupted education as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and in particular, I've been looking at um, affected Chinese students who are usually at uh, US colleges. Now, obviously, the pandemic is currently in a really severe uh, state in the United States, and you know that has had pretty dire consequences for um, for many groups of people, including the sort of three hundred and seventy thousand or so Chinese students who who uh, study over there. They represent about a third of all 
overseas students in in the US. Um, they obviously um, make an awful lot of money through tuition fees for their colleges. But also, you know, they are a very consequential group economically. They they contribute about um, $15 billion per year to, to the American economy as a whole in normal times, of course. And now, you know, many of them have, have come home, come back to China and are facing uncertain futures, not only due to the pandemic, but due to, you know, a succession of flight suspensions, visa restrictions or threatened visa restrictions and a, a general attitude of hostility from, from the Trump administration. Um, and now as, as we, you know, move towards the beginning of the new school year, Many colleges are, uh, many American colleges are scrambling to find ways to accommodate the Chinese students that are on their books from China, right? So accommodate them remotely without disproportionately impacting their education. A lot of us thought we had challenges when we were students, but few of us have experienced anything remotely comparable to what these guys are going through. So I'm wondering, how has this impacted their education so far? Yeah, so um, since late spring, towards the late, uh, sort of later period of last semester, um, many students um, shifted from in-person classes to to online learning, um, and that's that's extended as well to the students who have come back to China. Um, some say that online learning has been okay; they've been able to to you know interact normally or normally enough with their. Uh, US-based teachers and classmates. Um, but for other people, it's been a real problem. So I spoke to one student, uh, Zhao Litian, who is a Cornell University major. And he he's waking up at 2 a.m., or he was waking up at 2 a.m., I should say, in uh, towards the end of last term to attend online classes through, through Zoom or through other online platforms. Um, and I understood from talking to, to other students like Zhao that that was quite a common occurrence. Um, and students also described other problems, you know, problems with accessing course materials, completing online assignments or tests, and and, and also a problem with um, a more general drop-off in quality a- a- among certain courses, particularly those that have a real kind of practical focus. So um, Zhao, is a, he's, a, he's a science major, but he takes on the side a conversational Russian class. Um, uh, but he was saying that, you know, Waking up in the middle of the night to to chat in Russian in these kind of um, very sort of one to one online platforms with dodgy connections, it was really really tough. It's nothing like being in a uh, a classroom environment with a bunch of other Russian learners. And overall, the effect is that it diminishes his ability to progress in in that language. So um, yeah, he's been he's been really struggling. And, you know, even I would say as well that even students who didn't come back to China have also been affected sometimes in bizarre ways by the pivot from American colleges towards online learning. I spoke to another student called Shen Yi Yang, who is a, a political science major at um, the University of Pittsburgh. And he said that he actually chose not to come back to China in the end because of the difficulties accessing materials in China uh, for his degree. And obviously, you would think that political science is the kind of degree that is very bookish and could be very easily accessible from anywhere in the world. But he, he said, no, his his uh, his specialist subject is Marxist thought. And ironically, China was not the most convenient place for him to access those materials. So Matthew, I'm wondering whether universities are trying to do more to help students during this particularly difficult time. They are. So beyond online classes, many colleges in the States are looking at these kind of complex 
workarounds um, to try and restore a measure of sort of quote unquote real student life. Um, even though evidently things won't ever be exactly the same while these students are, are sort of marooned back in China. Um, in particular, in this story, I looked into Cornell's Study Away scheme, um, which is one of the more comprehensive plans put out there by an American college so far and is designed to allow its 2,500 or so Chinese students to live and study at one of seven local institutions in China during the full semester, um, in addition to taking a few Cornell classes remotely. So um, Zhao, the, the, the chemistry major who speaks a bit of Russian, and another Chinese Cornell student called Kevin Sheng were my two main sources for the opinions of the student population on that. And they said that having t- spoken to their Chinese classmates, they, they thought you know, people were generally glad to have the chance to enjoy a little bit more community spirit by going to a Chinese institution, especially because many of these institutions are are really prestigious in China. It was a cool chance to to experience that. But they had their worries as well. It wasn't initially clear just how much influence Cornell had on the application process to Chinese institutions. Some of the institutions were um, uh, geographically isolated or clustered in you know northern and eastern cities, which made you know people wonder whether or not students in the south and west would have the same chances. And, you know, people were also worried that they'd have to continue taking classes at unsociable hours because Cornell is still requiring them to take certain credits. So, yeah, ultimately, the students said the scheme is better than what was there before when they were looking at a term just, you know, stuck in front of a computer uh, late at night. But it's not quite as good as being on the Cornell campus in in New York. And I've, I've since learned, and this was something that Cornell did warn people about, but I've since, since learned that not everyone who applied to the study away scheme managed to actually get a place at a Chinese university. So Zhao managed to get a, a, a place at Tsinghua, which is one of China's um, most prestigious um, universities here in Beijing. But unfortunately, uh, Kevin Sheng was was rejected by his his uh, choice institution. I don't quite know what his, his next move is going to be, but you know, he could, in theory, face you know a, a whole semester now of, of just being at home and, and, and studying online again. So this is an example of a, of, of a particularly comprehensive scheme put out by an American university, but other, other colleges have their own schemes as well. Um, another controversy that kind of unites them is that very few American universities seem willing to lower their tuition fees for international students despite the fact that they're not on campus and can't go to class normally which some some students told me is is pretty unfair because they don't feel as though they're getting the same product that they signed up for. Matthew, I guess the really big question is what happens to these students if they can't return to their American schools? Yeah, so it's a good question. At the moment, I, th- I think the majority of US schools are planning for a midterm future in which these students can come back onto campus. But experts did tell me that there was a chance, a pretty good chance that some, at least some Chinese students would be either unable or unwilling to go back to the US or their other overseas colleges due to the effects of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the logical thing would seem to be to incorporate these students into the Chinese higher education system, right? Um, but it's not quite as simple as that. Um, part of the reason is that Chinese uh, universities require most matriculating students to present their uh, scores on the Gaokao, which is the notoriously difficult and grueling Chinese college entrance exam. But kids who are planning to go to to the States or to other countries, they often op- opt out of that course in order to study an international curriculum. They take the SAT or whatever else. So they don't have that certificate. 
And that could lead to problems in bringing them back into the Chinese system now that they've spent so much time away from the domestic curriculum. Some officials have suggested different routes into the tertiary education system in China to, in order to, to bring these bring these displaced students back into the fold. Um, one of which was to open up extra places at um, professional or vocational colleges in China, of which there are hundreds. But most of the students that I spoke to were pretty... Well, they, they scoffed really at the idea that, that that they would go into a professional or a vocational school having studied so hard to get into a really prestigious American college. You know, ultimately, when I was speaking to these students, what you get is this sense of a tension between the realities of the pandemic and, you know, the students' reluctance to give up the cachet of an American college degree. They've been working on it, working towards it for so many years after all. Um, for example, Shenny Young, the Pittsburgh student, you know, said at the end of the day, students apply to American universities for a reason. You know, that includes the world class teaching facilities, the vibrant communities, the the academic openness. They're all super attractive to to, to people who um, you know plan to study abroad and, and are not necessarily. Um, found in such abundance at universities in China. Um, so the idea of going into a what they might consider a slightly second-rate Chinese higher education facility at this point in their academic careers would be a real tough one to take. Matthew Walsh, thank you very much for chatting with us about this important issue, and I look forward to having you back on the program. Thank you, Kaiser. It was a pleasure. The pleasure is mine, Matthew. Take care. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is produced by Kaiser Guo and Nandini Venkata with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin and Marcus Ryder of Caixin Global. Thanks to Wu Fei and Spring and Autumn for the music. Be sure to check out the other shows in the Seneca Network on SubChina and for daily news and views, make sure to subscribe to SubChina Access for our daily newsletter. Find us at subchina.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.